Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. It's a new week. College basketball is going on, but who cares, right? Uh, we talk about the NBA. Joining us this week, taking a break from South by Southwest in Austin, is Kurt Goldsberry. How many uh, forms are you on or are attending this week, sir? Well, we just had one. We had R.C. Buford. We had Becky Bonner, who's a leader for the Orlando Magic, and Chris Bosch. We talked about the future of basketball, and that was it. Other than that, I'm just drinking free drinks at the open bars. Oh. <laughs> now, what did you take away from that about the future of basketball? Oh, my gosh. Well, Becky Bonner's the future of basketball. She is a powerhouse. Um, for those of you who don't know, she's uh, one of the first female members of a front office in the NBA, and she's the director of player development for the uh, suddenly ascendant Orlando Magic. Um, so she's the future of NBA basketball, and that's great. Uh, yeah. Chris Bosch. Used to work at the NBA uh, for the league office and is the sister of Matt Bonner. Not that that's relevant, but just filling out her bio. Yeah, she's been a leader of both the NBA League office and now with the Orlando Magic. That's exactly right. And then Chris and RC had some great memories of the 2014 NBA Finals, the air conditioner game. We talked a lot about that, laughed about that. Chris cried about that, but it was good. What about the two, what about the 2013 NBA Finals? Uh, Any memories we tried of that? Not to trigger RC with that, um, the the assist that Chris Bosh threw will go down in NBA history is arguably yeah. one of the most uh, important assists in league history. So we didn't really want to make rc really mad so we stayed away from that one brian also joining us in seattle is kevin pelton um i i you know i i've talked about this before but i i did a forensic review of that play uh where ray allen hits the three and you watch it over and over and over again and the ball should not end up in bosch's hands um there are two spurs i know ginobili is one of them i can't remember who the other one was um, Duncan was not on the floor and the ball is in, is, is in their hands. And I don't know, it's, it's, you drop the ball in there 15 times and 14 and a half, a, a spur ends up with it. Somehow it ends up in Bosch's hands. I can't explain it, but I will never forget, I, um, the look on RC's face. I saw him in the hallway after the game and I've seen RC after championships. I've been there several times watching him hold the trophy and that day and just to lose a championship, uh, that was rough. But, uh, um, it's interesting that you bring up Chris Bosch because we have an interesting development in the league. Uh, and I'm going to write about this later this week and I'm, I'm, I'm in danger of stealing my thunder, but I don't care. I'm just really fascinated by it. Um, so first off, let's just point out that Brandon Ingram, um, being, they they caught the blood clot in his arm or in his upper chest, um, and that's really important because if a blood clot is in your upper chest, it is not far from your lungs and your heart, and if a blood clot goes to your lungs and your heart, that can be it. And so I think a very important thing was that they thought this was a shoulder injury, and whomever was involved with elevating this to say, you know what, let's take a look at this. Let's, this may not be just a simple pulled muscle. Um, deserves immense credit uh, with the Lakers because um, that is genuinely scary. And I speak of somebody who has had a blood clot. Um, I do not want to downplay at all that he was diagnosed with it, um, and that is a significant thing. Um, 
the thing about a blood clot is it's very they're very treatable. Um, the problem is is that the treatment is terrible. Um, it's not the cure is not worse than the disease, but the cure is not not easy. And it's why Chris Bosch's career is over. It's why Mirza Toledovich's career is over. There's been other athletes who have ended with it. And um, this is the unpleasant side of this. This is a devastating situation for the Lakers, not just because they lose a guy who was having uh, his best run of one of his best runs of play that he's had in the NBA, but he is now a guy who has a blood clot. Um, if he gets another one, uh, his career will probably be over. And um, that is a dangerous thing for a team to have to to to, to, to have a to, to be sober about. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been talking with league um, executives the last couple of days about this, and this has an impact on his value. And I hate to put it that way, but it's just true, especially for a team that's looking to majorly upgrade its talent. Um, you know, he's got to be he's got to get healthy and and be okay and and recover from this first, but. Um, this was a real blow to the Lakers, not just with Brandon Ingram uh, losing him, but also if they ever wanted to trade him. Um, Kevin, uh, what was I mean? You know, what, what was your reaction when you saw that that's what he was diagnosed with? Yeah, I think the same level of concern in terms of you know it seems unpredictable when or whether this might recur, and and you do see examples of players who have dealt with blood clots that have not had an issue again, and if have just been able to continue right. their career normally. But, you know, in the case of both Bosch uh, the following year and Toledovich, in which case it was several years apart, I think, because That's right. he originally had the uh, had blood clots in Brooklyn uh, and right. then subsequently last season with the Bucks when that... And he played with the Suns debate. in between and had no issues. Yeah, but you're going to have this elevated risk factor for an unknown period of time. And, uh, you know, I think if you're a team, yeah, if you're another team considering trading for Ingram, it's going to weigh heavily in your evaluation. Yeah, and even if, and even if you are swayed by doctors, it affects, you know, I was talking to a guy from a, from another team today, and he said, even if you fully believe he's healthy, it affects what you're going to offer for him because it's perceived value. Um, and, um, something else is he's due a contract extension, uh, as early as this summer. He's eligible for an extension. And because of that, you can't get insurance. You will not be able to get insurance for a blood clot. And, you know, that was one thing that the Heat, Heat did have insurance on Chris Bosch. Now, they'd rather have had Chris Bosch the player. Um, uh, they, they'd still rather have him. They'd like to have him right now. He's at the end of his, that, this is the last of the five year contract. They'd love it if he was still out there averaging 20 and 10. Um, but Bosch's contract was, was insured so that the Heat were able to recoup millions of dollars that they had to pay out. Um, they won't be able to get that, which is also concerning if you have to immediately sign him to an extension, which the Lakers or any team he would be traded to. So, Kirk, I just think that, that this – I mean, I, I don't know. You know, It was over a weekend, um, and also Lonzo Ball was ruled out for the year, and the Lakers had so much – bad news last week that I think it sort of just went by like, oh man. And I don't know if if it's been appropriately you know, viewed as this is a real major thing that just happened to the Lakers franchise, another piece of unfortunate news. Well, yeah, I don't think it has been properly <clears throat> talked about. And it, it's, it's dicey and it's sad. And it's, I think Pelton had a great word. It's just elevated risk. Um, I hope obviously that, that, that Ingram's okay for the long run. He's, he's really good. Um, and we all want to see him play for a long time. Um, but I think one of the trends that this sort of intersects with, I know we're going to talk about this piece in a minute, but like sports science, medical science in the NBA in 2019 is really hard, is really important. 
Um, and there's legitimate questions about whether, you know, the Lakers as an organization are prepared to um, deal with these realities, deal with these innovative sort of spaces. Um, and I think, you know, whether or not it, 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 it's with Ingram or Lonzo's injury, even LeBron's rest and recovery, um, I think these are issues facing the Lakers. They need to sort of they need to sort of advance the state of their uh, organization in these sort of emerging realms. Not the only person to say that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and the, here's the thing: they have renovated their. Um, they have renovated their, uh, well, they have a brand new facility, but they have, they recently completely redid their entire training staff. Um, I mean, they have taken some steps. Whether or not they've taken enough, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard lots of, I've heard people, you know, blame, you know, the fact that Alonzo uh, Ball's had a couple of ankle sprains this year, blame that on the fact that he wears big baller brand shoes. But I mean, you can't help it if, he, if a guy steps on someone else's foot. You know, I don't know, but um, Kevin Arnovitz wrote an elegant, I guess is the word I could use, takedown of the Lakers over the weekend, um, where he just really, you know, sort of forensically um, took, you know, really looked at their situation. And it's, I mean, I really encourage you to read it. I mean, there's a couple of things in here that I think um, are just amazing. Uh, and one of them is that... He talks about magic, um, you know, focusing so heavily on free agency as opposed to um, focusing on team building. And he talked about how, um, you know, magic was determining the success or failure of his tenure uh, about whether they were able to sign a star. In fact, I think he guaranteed a few days before LeBron signed last year, he guaranteed that they would get a star in the next two years or this would be deemed a failure. And that that really isn't how an owner or how a how a, a group should be looking at whether their team is a success or a failure. That the Lakers are only star hunting and they're not worried about as much about player development, um, and they're not worried necessarily about you know draft uh, procedures and and uh, draft evaluation because they haven't done so well. In fact, they haven't even done so well with with player personnel. I mean, if you just looked at in the last year. They have allowed, you know, you know, they're desperate at the center position right now, and they have allowed Brooke Lopez, Thomas Bryant, and Ivica Zubac to walk or be traded away. Um, all three of those guys, you know, had value that they missed. I mean, there's real issues there. Um, Kirk, what did you think? Uh, somebody, somebody who's worked in the front office, what did you think about some of the points that Kevin raised and, and where the Lakers are right now? Way beyond just the fact they've had some injury misfortune. Well, let me just start by saying I agree with everything you said about the piece. Everybody should go read it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's really well done. Kevin did a great job. Um, but, yeah, I think one of the things he talks about is how the Lakers are one of the best brands in the NBA. And the NBA as a whole is undeniably sort of a better place when the Lakers are great. But they're not great. And part of that is because they're not really innovative. Um, and what I mean by that is, like, during a decade that we sort of would characterize um, – by massive innovation and things like basketball operations, the Lakers are not sort of generally looked at as one of those innovative teams. Whether we're talking about sports science, you talked about player development and draft strategy, things like cap strategy, analytics, um, player personnel. They're generally not viewed on the bleeding edge of these trends that have sort of come to dominate basketball operations this decade. Um, in layman's terms, they're behind. Um, and I think one of the things that Kevin sort of flirts with is this idea that they're entitled. 
um, the word entitlement sort of came to my mind a lot while reading his piece. And there seems to be that kind of entitlement with how at least he characterizes that organization viewing their success, viewing the fact that they are the purple and gold. They are the Los Angeles Lakers. Therefore, they are entitled um, to success. And that's not how the NBA is working right now. The NBA is a very difficult landscape, unforgiving. Um, and I think one of the things he hits on sort of in general is that they're not innovative in ways that the other top teams in the league are. Well, the, the thing that I think is interesting about the Lakers is even though they are the richest franchise in terms of the money that they bring in, their operation runs lean. I've mentioned this before because they are family operation. Uh, they are not backed by billionaires. The, the, the bus family is billionaires because of their equity in the Lakers. They are not billionaires because they, um, you know, have uh, uh, a 10 figure um, income stream. And I think that goes to the way they operate. They operate generally with a lesser staff. Um, than um, in other teams, and one of the things that happens that you see, and and you know, Pelton, he used to work for the Sonics, and at the time, Seattle was viewed as a small market. Today, I think if they had a team, they would be viewed more as a bigger market. The way this is gone, but that operation ran um, like a small market. And when you're a small market team, you you have to invest in player development. You have to invest in scouting. Um, you know, the San Antonio Spurs can't afford to compete for free agents uh, the way a team like the Lakers or Knicks can. So they have always operated with way more support staffs. They've been forced to be innovative um, because, you know, they don't have people trying to get there. Uh, you know, they don't have $400 million in annual revenue like the Lakers do. And so the Lakers have kind of, they don't have the... Um, the makeup of a team to build from scratch. And this is, this is a problem, Kevin, that is the chickens are coming home to roost when you look at what's happened with their draft picks and their decision-making. Well, is the patron state of unpopular causes? Can I mildly attempt a mild defense of the Lakers front office here? I, I think if we well, looked at it, this, this. yeah, I think if we looked at it through this time a year ago, we'd say that magic Johnson and Rob Polinka had generally done a really good job in putting the Lakers in position. They'd gotten to the point where they had the, the ability to go out and sign LeBron without giving up any future first-round picks. Of course, it cost them D'Angelo Russell to get off the uh, Timofey Mozgov contract and then Larry Nance to get off the Jordan Clarkson contract last year at the deadline. But both of those picks, trades, they got back late first-round picks, uh, ended up turning the one from Brooklyn into Kyle Kuzma, had drafted Josh Hart in the first round. Like those are two strong first round picks, even if the the top picks that they had hadn't yielded the stars that uh, you know everyone kind of hoped when you have the number two pick in the draft three years in a row. I, to me, they lost the plot at, at that point. You know, the last year's draft, Mo Wagner, not someone who you know was really fit what they were going to try and do this year has not contributed almost at all and then obviously everything they did in free agency after signing lebron it looks as bad now as we all thought it did last summer so i mean i guess one of the questions i have here is you know how much do we think that lebron's involvement his influence is a factor in what's gone wrong for the lakers over the last year including uh the fact that luke walton looks like he's about to get fired well, I, I would say that I'm not just talking about Magic and Rob. I think it's just the Lakers' operation in general. The Lakers, frank, frankly, the Lakers' operation, as Kirk mentioned, for the last decade, um, it's not just been under Magic and Rob. And you know, they had three consecutive number two picks. 
Um, none of them have shown stunning development. Uh, Russell made his leap after he was traded. Um, now, Ingram was showing some signs, but in general, he's just been okay for a number two pick. Um, yes, they did a really good job with Kuzma and Hart, but you know, Hart is a rotation player. He's not really a front-line player. I mean, if you have four other really good players, you could start Hart. And Kuzma, again, would be a good number three and a great number four. But we're not talking about uh, they didn't get Donovan Mitchell or Jimmy Butler back there. Um, they did a good job. But, I mean, I'm just talking more about the whole the whole thing. In terms of LeBron, um, I think the Lakers m- misunderstood what dealing with LeBron is. One of the things that LeBron has done expertly is um, influence moves without taking ownership of moves. And um, when you, you know, if you'd have done, if you'd done any research, which I don't know if they did or not, but they didn't act like they had done research, they would have known that. And I just, I don't think you know the the way that they approached their 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 off season plan. Did not, you know, LeBron is going to kind of, I already have sensed this, LeBron is kind of going to get blamed a little bit for it, saying, oh, he wanted these players. Um, ultimately, you know, it is, it is Magic Johnson's responsibility to sign the players and sign off on the moves. And, um, you know, LeBron can give input, but if you've, again, if you pay attention to it, LeBron is never going to take ownership of it when the cookie crumbles. So you've always got to have, you know, your, you know, um, you know, your fingerprints on the team. If you leave it to LeBron to give you a passing suggestion over wine, it's not going to work out and he's not going to be there when the heat comes. So I, I, I don't think that they had, I don't think they were prepared to be in business with LeBron. They may have prepared themselves to open the cap space to sign him, but I don't know if they did enough to prepare themselves to be in business with him. And that's what I thought their, their moves looked like. Um, and uh, it was remarkable how fast it, w- it went sideways because they signed LeBron. LeBron put out the press release that he was signing with the uh, Lakers at a, probably about four, I think f- about five o'clock Pacific time, so about eight o'clock Eastern time. And um, I, you know that was a huge moment for them, he, you know, huge step forward in the organization, historic in a way. And then about twenty minutes later, uh, the news that. KCP, Contavious Caldwell Pope had signed a one-year, twelve million dollar deal. Arrived, and I, I don't think I was like they went left, right immediately. Uh, Kirk, like you know, and that's what's so strange is that they were, they had a strong vibe that they were going to get LeBron, but their plan after they got him seems pretty strange. And for Le- even if LeBron had had conversations with Magic and sort of indicated to them what he kind of liked. They went hog wild there, and I just can't blame that on LeBron. No, totally. And you said the term. You said the term research, Brian, <clears throat> and uh, I love that term. Uh, and to me, again, it's it's evidence that the, the organization isn't doing research. They're not conducting business in the way that the other teams around the league are. And anyone who's watched LeBron James for the last decade, um, nobody's watched him more than you, Brian, has witnessed sort of a relatively simple team building formula, particularly the Cleveland teams, but also the Miami teams. LeBron attacks the middle. There are teammates around the edges who can shoot. The Cavs' best teams had shooters like Korver, Kyrie, Kevin Love, J.R. Smith all over the edges of the court. The best Heat teams had, I want to say, Ray Allen, Mike Miller, Shane Battier, Richard Lewis. These guys all shoot 40% in catch-and-shoot situations. 
um, and punish anybody. Hell, who Mario Chalmers' pass. numbers were good, frankly. Yeah. So this year's Lakers Not squad bad. was almost defiantly engineered against that basic approach. Instead of lining the roster with uh, three and D sh- dudes, they populated with bizarre players like Lance Rondo, Javale. <clears throat> By the time they added shooters like Bullock and Muscala near the deadline, it was too late. Um, and for those reasons, I think the 2018-19 Lakers um, are a failure in team building and, and vision. And I think I, I think we're on the same page there. Uh, a failure to learn or research from the Miami and Cleveland precedents. And to Arnovitz's points, the Lakers are sort of closer, I'm sorry to say this, to being the Knicks than they are the Warriors. And I, here's a stat for you. Um, you know, LeBron's number one shooter right now is Kyle Kuzma. He leads the Lakers in three-point shots. This was a Out devastating... Of, you you, tweet, you tweeted this. Yeah. I, well, tweeted I, maybe, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this was a devastating tweet. But go ahead. Well, it, it, Yeah, and I, there, there's two points. The Number one is just isolating it this year. And out of 56 players that have tried at least 300 threes this year, Kuzma ranks 55th in three-point percentage. He's their number one three-point shooter in terms of volume. Um, and if you look back at the Cleveland teams, which were, by the way, not really lauded for being genius team-building uh, examples, uh, you see their number one three-point shooters in his last four years there were Kyrie the first year at 41.5%, JR the second year at 40%, Kyrie the third year again at 40%, and then Korver last season at 43.6%. Kuzma's shooting 312 or he was a couple days ago from three. It's, he just doesn't have that perimeter arsenal that he's had in his last two stops. And to me, it's that simple. Um, and I'm curious to what you guys think about that. Kevin, um, uh, if you were the Lakers, um, what, what would you be doing right now? Like, what, what, would, what would you be researching and studying? Because I'm sure they're researching and studying how we can sign... These, these four or five stars that are on the market, but what would you be doing right now if you were in the Lakers front office? I mean, it's kind of a tricky situation because, you know, sort of to the point that we've been discussing, there was the, uh, the, the tweet by noted Lakers fan Flea a couple weeks ago where he was like, <laughs> look, we've got to stop pursuing stars and just build a team that wants to, you know, play together and has chemistry. But I feel like if you're the Lakers, that's the, that's the approach that got you Timofey Mozgov and Luol Deng three years ago. I mean, that's like your cap space is so valuable if you're the Lakers that you kind of almost are forced to use it year to year if you're not able to to bring in a star using it. So I'm I'm not sure I would pivot in that direction. I think and I don't think that, you know, I think that maybe the, this notion that, you know, the team was fractured by the fact that they had all these veterans on one year contracts. Well, like, look at the Clippers who are pursuing a similar strategy. It's not necessarily yes. they're going to unsign players to one-year contracts, but you know Patrick Beverly knows that he might not be there long term. Uh, Tobias Harris, before he was traded, knew he was, but that's not hurt their chemistry. Their chemistry has been great, partially because of the fact that the guys who are going to be there long term and the guys who are going to be there short term, they complement each other. To me, that's the thing: is making sure if yeah. you are going to pursue that strategy, that you get players that are complementary to your young talent. Is the Lakers and not let's pit Rajon Rondo against Lonzo Ball. Let's pit, you know, Beasley against Kyle Kuzma. The, these sorts of things. Those are guys who are duplicative or, you know, competing with rather than complementary to. Basketball season is in full swing. This is when playoff seeding gets interesting and the true contenders outperform the rest. And wherever you're driving your family and friends this basketball season, you should make sure your car has the right tires to get you there safely. Goodyear knows that performance is everything, whether it's on the road or on the court. 
This goes without saying, Andrew. So when it comes to choosing tires, let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. That's Goodyear, more driven. I think this is the first time all season we'll be talking about the Detroit Pistons on here. Um, Pistons have won eight of the last ten games. They've moved up to sixth place in the uh, in the East. Um, they're essentially in a dead. Oh, they're a game ahead of the Nets, who they play tonight. Or half a game ahead of the Nets. Um, and uh, Kirk, you had a uh, um, a chart. I don't, I don't want to call it a chart. It was sort of a, a graphic that said since uh, what was the last fifteen it was the last fifteen days, the last fifteen games. That's mm-hmm. fifteen games. Um, fifteen games, right? Yeah, um, the last fifteen games. Uh, tell us what you what you illustrated about the Detroit Pistons. The Detroit Pistons are the best team in the NBA over the last fifteen games. The way I look at the NBA through uh, you know the Dean Oliver framework, they have the number one net rating. They're twelve of uh, twelve and three in their last fifteen. As you said, they've climbed up to sixth place, I think. And uh, their net rating is ten point four, which is better than the Rockets, who are getting a lot of attention over that same stretch, uh, and rightly so, I should say. But the Detroit Pistons offense is uh, incredible, um, and Blake Griffin needs to get more attention than he's currently getting um, because he is their definitive sort of offensive weapon. Their offensive rating over the last 15 games is 119, which is by far um, the best such mark in the league. Um, and again, I think it's like this is what Blake Griffin's prime looks like. He deserves credit for being sort of the best point forward in the league right now. Um, at least on a playoff team. And I think he is just not getting enough attention in, in the season of Harden and Giannis and, and Paul George. Like, maybe it's time we give Blake Griffin a look. So let me ask you this. I uh, had some, I, in my uh, weekly column last week, I speculated this is going to be the end of one of the great um, series of, um, one of the great uh, streaks of LeBron's career. He's made the first team All-NBA 11 consecutive years. Um, and uh, that ties the all-time streak for a consecutive uh, first-team All-NBAs with Bill Russell. And by the way, All-NBA has been around to the 60s. It hasn't always had three teams, but first-team All-NBA has been around to the 60s. Um, LeBron, 11 straight first teams. Uh, if he makes the All-NBA team, any of the three teams this year, he'll tie um, a number of guys who have made 15 teams altogether in a row. So I think it's pretty safe to guess that LeBron is not going to make first team, uh, considering Paul George um, and uh, Giannis are MVP candidates. Um, Blake Griffin has made a strong push, uh, mm. and Blake Griffin playing kind of like LeBron has played at point forward for them. That Dwayne Casey sort of designed that role. Um, Blake Griffin second team All NBA. You put Blake Griffin ahead of LeBron this year, wouldn't you think, Kevin? I don't know if I'm willing to go that far. I'd, I'd want to look at it first. I mean, to me, Kawhi. I mean, well, don't you don't you credit the team? Ahead of both those guys. Okay, and yeah, well, Durant. Well, I didn't mention Durant. So, so, so Durant. You take him Paul George, the third guy. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry, Durant, Paul George, Giannis. You figure? I figure Paul George and Giannis are making first team, even though Durant's been awesome. But well, how do you see it? Yeah, no, I agree with that part of it. Yeah, and then. So then, yeah, I guess you're you're debating who's going to be the the, the next guy on the second team, uh, right? Which is probably I, I, Kawhi to me. Yeah, well, Kawhi is there, but don't, I mean, and then Blake too. I mean, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I think Blake's having a tremendous year, and you cannot discount the fact that this is a team that missed the playoffs last year that he is carrying into the playoffs. 
Um, yeah, and I would say to, to that point, if he keeps doing this for the rest of the season, he's going to earn himself one of those slots. I mean, this is the best team in the NBA over the last 15 games. I mean, 12-3, and three, nobody has a better record. Statistically, nobody has better markers. And he's the reason why. I mean, what are we doing here? Like, LeBron's team is careening towards the lottery, and his team is sort of ascending towards the playoffs. Um, I'm not saying he's a better player, uh, but the way I view the All-NBA is, like, who had a better season? And part of that certainly is where does your team end up and how healthy were you? Um, and, and for me, Blake Griffin has had a better season than LeBron James. I don't think it's, it's particularly close. I think LeBron James is probably a better basketball player. I don't think that's a hot take. But uh, when it comes to All-NBA, Blake Griffin certainly deserves some consideration, especially if they finish as strong as they look like they might. Um, this team might make noise in the, in the Eastern Conference playoffs and come out of nowhere and get into the second or maybe third round of the playoffs. Who knows? But I'm going to watch this team real closely the last uh, few weeks, and if they keep it up, why not? I think the big question with the Pistons, whether they can keep this up, is whether they can sustain the shooting. Uh, you look over the last 15 games, 41% from three, best in the right. league, making almost 15 a game. And, you know, they've got some shooters, but... Uh, you know, Langston Galloway, Luke Kennard, these are not guys that you expected to necessarily be uh, as prolific as they've been over this stretch here. And then Reggie Jackson shooting, I think, over 50% in the last 15 games from three. That's right. He's shooting 49%. He's shooting 49% from three in the last 15. Langston Galloway, I don't think has missed a three in a week, and I'm not kidding. I think he's he has not. He's made 12 in a row. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you do. Th- those do seem like a little bit of outlier numbers. Um but, you know, Reggie Jackson to me is a guy, like, I never agreed with, I, I, the, the trade that they made for him, which I think the, the piece that they gave up essentially for him was Kyle Singler. Uh, it was a good trade. Um, they immediately signed him to an $80 million contract, and, uh, I just did not see him as an $80 million player. And then he's unfortunately had knee injuries, which has really slowed him down. But when he is an efficient scorer, which he isn't very often, but at the, the golden moments when he is. Um, he had a couple of uh, absolutely brilliant playoff stretches with the Thunder as their third guard. Um, and that is what fueled the Pistons' desire to go make him their lead guard. Um, but when he when he does have those stretches of efficiency, he does look fantastic. And he is having the hottest one he's, he's had. Um, and that's for sure. And... Um, you know, I think the I think the Pistons, uh, who, who are a team that was under some pressure to have a big year this year, um, uh, and they kicked around uh, doing some more at the trade deadline. They, you know, Drummond was has floated around out there on the trade market for a while. Um, they ended up deciding to keep him, and uh, he's had a terrific uh, stretch. So I think um, I think the, I think the Pistons are, are a team to pay attention to. Um, on the other end of the spectrum. The, uh, the the Golden State Warriors had, uh, to their own admission, their worst loss of the season last night to the Suns. Um, the Suns have had a great week. They've uh, beaten the, the Bucks and the Warriors. This game happened in Golden State, um, and I, I'm really my 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 brain tells me not to get too worried about the Warriors. I don't really want to spend time worrying about them. They're so good when they're on. And, you know, they're playing in Houston, I think, on Wednesday night. And they could very easily go into Houston, end their winning streak, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, plant a stake in their heart and, and, you know, everything's A-OK. But, Kevin, when I look at this team, the difference that's been, that's, that's difference between this team and other teams, including last year's team, which I think finished 7 10, uh, down the stretch of the season and then went 16 and 5 in the playoffs. 
Um, they didn't have this major De- DeMarcus Cousins situation where they had to really change their style of play to accommodate him, which is struggling, which is hurting them on defense. And this team's depth just isn't there. Uh, they go into the bench and it gets ugly quickly. And that's something that they wanted to fix. Uh, they, they recognized that they were weakening there with some age and David West retiring. And they just haven't been able to do that this year. Um, should I legitimately be concerned about this or should I go with my instinct and say they're going to be fine? A little. I mean, we did see against Denver on Friday night that, you know, when the Warriors were up for that game, uh, you know, the Nuggets had a chance to tie them for first place in the Western Conference. And the Warriors came out and showed everyone, hey, we're still the Warriors and had that kind of great performance that we've come to expect from them. And it's very possible that, yeah, we get to the playoffs and they, they flip the switch and that happens. I mean, I think the, the one dangerous thing about that, though, is, you know, because of that track record, because of that mindset, as long as Kevin Durant is there, if the Warriors lose, it's going to be, you know, we're going to find ourselves saying, oh, why didn't we all see all these signs? Because they were actually there all along. Mm-hmm. And the one thing, I'm, I'm sure this has come up on the podcast, but you hear over and over talking to people in the league is, you know, hey, we just want to see what happens if they get down 2-1 in this series. If we can punch them in the face and see what happens. And, you know, whether they start turning on each other, whether it's Durant's free agency, whether it's, you know, the fact that Cousins has been struggling to, to fit in defensively, do they start blaming each other and turning that blame inward as opposed to, you know, banding together and rallying to win the series like we did see last year against Houston in the conference finals. Well, Kirk, in your efficiency landscape report over the last 15 games that uh, has the Pistons out front of everybody, the Warriors, this is what was alarming to me, 18th defensively yeah. um, in efficiency in the last 15, last 15 games. That's not an insignificant number, and that's a worrisome that's a worrisome trend, especially because I think a lot of it is tied to DeMarcus. Not that it's his right. fault, per se, but what are you seeing with them? What I'm seeing with them is DeMar- that Boogie's not fitting in right now. Here's some stats for you. In the last 13 games of DeMarcus Cousins, uh, he's a negative 5 net rating when he's on the court. They're losing games when he's on the court. And their offense is below league average in the 27 minutes a game he's been playing. Uh, this is the Golden State Warriors having a below average offense when DeMarcus Cousins is on the court. Uh, that's alarming. Uh, to Pelton's point, uh, the warning signs are there. Um, what I've been saying all year is either this is the 2001 Lakers or the 2004 Lakers. Either they're going to get to the playoffs and just mow through everybody after sort of an awkward regular season, or that somebody like the Pistons is going to come out and just out-muscle them, out-tough them, you know, play better basketball, and they're not going to sort of have that cohesion um, that they've had over the last four or five years to, to win those kinds of series. So I, I'm looking at Draymond, and I'm looking at DeMarcus, and I'm seeing negative net ratings. I'm seeing warning signs on defense. And uh, to your point, Brian, they're not the deepest team in the league by any means. Uh, their depth is as weak as it's ever been. They're one injury away from a really, really dangerous situation. So I would say this. I think this is the closest they've been to not being a favorite uh, since they lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Brian, uh if yes, we're talking about the Warriors and their dysfunction and lack of chemistry, we'd be remiss not to point out the gaffe that Kerr got caught in last night in the loss to the Suns where he was seen on camera saying, I'm so f***ing tired of Draymond. Um, you just gave uh, Kyrie our uh, 
our producer, a, some things to edit. But here's the problem with that. I don't know. He got cut off, and I don't know really what he said. He could have said, I'm tired of Draymond's not covering on the pick and roll, tired of Draymond shooting. I mean, it could have been... It didn't look good, I agree. Um, but I don't have enough information to um, to totally uh, know what he said. I will say that when you look at this team, they have a guy on offense who is a, a, a guy you don't have to guard in Draymond. Teams don't guard him. And so they kind of... I don't want to say they're playing four on five on offense, but maybe it's like four and a half on five. And then defensively, they have a hole because everybody is attacking DeMarcus right now. And while they could go to the Hamptons five, which I'm sure they will go to the Hamptons five when it really matters, um, they're not deep enough to just, you know, only use him for 12 minutes. They need him to play. So you have, you know, so on defense, you're already, you're kind of going, you know, five on four because of how you have to cover for DeMarcus's man or help him or just simply allow him to be mismatched when they uh, go into the pick and roll. And on offense, you've got a weak spot in Draymond. And so regardless of what happens in the locker room, what happens in the huddles and what Draymond might be doing to irritate them, I mean, those guys have a bunch of rings and those rings all happen with Draymond doing stuff like that. I'm much more worried about the schematic X and O problems that they have that they haven't had in the past. And I've always felt like they had an incredible margin for error. And I think their margin for error is as narrow as it's been since they've been in the championship window. And hey, uh, um, One more thing on that, yeah. Brian. is like I, Politically, there's people around the league that wonder what will happen if they decide that as the X's and O's, your reference with Boogie, if they don't work out uh, and they have to bench him at the end of playoff games, uh, how will that manifest politically? Uh, this chemistry is pretty delicate here, too, whether there's smoke or, or, or any sort of substance around this Draymond and Kerr thing. There, I think the general truth is, like, this team is a little more fragile from a chemistry standpoint than the previous incarnations. Well, the interesting thing with it's going to happen with Draymond is going to be this summer, don't you think, Kevin? Whether they win, lose, or draw, um, Draymond wants a contract extension. He's hired Rich Paul to negotiate it for him. And I'm I'm sure the Warriors would be amenable to doing an extension. I just don't know if it's going to be at the number that um, that Draymond's going to want, uh, especially since you know, frankly, you know, these last couple seasons, he appears to have be regressing in his production. I mean, it can't be realistically like you know, even if Durant walks, they're still you know badly limited, and you know they're not going to create cap space. They might, you know, depending on how things play out be able to use the full mid-level exception and give him a little more than this year when it was the taxpayer mid-level. But, you know, I think it's it's as much Cousins wants to be on the court and be productive to position himself for that next contract from someone else who, you know, is going to have the cap space to give it to him. And, yeah, I mean, you know, this summer when they first signed him, the reaction was, oh, the league is over, the season is over, cancel everything. And, you know, the counter-argument was, hey, there are some legitimate questions about how Cousins is going to fit in, both in terms of the X's and O's, to your point, and then also in terms of the locker room dynamic. And look, they might you know, go through the playoffs and the undefeated in the Western Conference and cruise through the NBA Finals. And maybe we will, you know, the, the original take that uh, you know, the Warriors have ruined basketball by DeMarcus, again, by DeMarcus Cousins signing there will be correct. But right now it's looking a lot more like that, you know, more conservative viewpoint that, 
you know, you've injected an agent of chaos into something that was already running pretty well, and maybe that wasn't the greatest idea. They just couldn't help themselves. I just think they couldn't help themselves. I wonder, you know, that all went down, I think, what, July 2nd? Was that even, was that July 1st, too? Um, Uh, Yeah, I think it was July 2nd. It was Monday night, yeah. I I wonder what their other alternatives with that mid-level exception was, and whether or not, like, I'd love to know. I'd love to know what that board looked like, Um, who else they could have brought in. Um, and well, you know, uh, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not prepared for this cause I'm just sort of thinking it now about what their options would have been to, to, to do something that may have been more helpful to them. You know, you know, Patrick McCaw, I'm not saying that Patrick McCaw would have been a huge player for them, but McCaw is getting minutes in the uh, Raptors rotation and the Warriors are in are in need of a of a of a of a rotational player. You know, earlier this year they were playing Jonas Jurebko big minutes, uh, frankly because they were just short. I mean, there's just no way that they thought they were going to need him. Um, but they could use an athlete on the perimeter who can switch on defense, like McCaw could a little bit. So you know, they lost McCaw, which it's not going to cost them a title, but I don't think it's nothing. And um, I mean, they used their 15th roster spot on. Andrew Bogut, who, in a way, it's kind of like an indictment on, <laughs> it's a little bit of an indictment on Cousins because they felt like they needed another big who could defend, um, even if he may not even be active. Um, but the fact that they're using their 15th roster spot on Bogut, I think, is an indication that, man, uh, that, you know, they really weren't able to get the kind of player they wanted and sort of settled for that. No offense to Andrew. To, to the original question about who else they could have uh, gotten, it was reported that their target was uh, Tyreek Evans, who ended up getting a much more lucrative one-year deal from Indiana. So I don't know if he would and have settled not, and for... And has not played well. And has not played no, well. No, has not, yeah. Yeah, and he was the person I thought the Lakers should have gone after with their cap space as opposed to Rondo and Lance Stevenson. So, you know, they, i gotta, I got to take the hit on that one in the hindsight, too. Well, you know, look, I don't... <laughs> I'll never pretend like I can predict the future. Um, you know you know what I'll be interested to see what happens this summer is with all these big-time names out there? Because I think a guy like that the Lakers could really use, and frankly, a team like the Warriors could, although they won't be able to afford him, is uh, you know, uh, Boyan Bogdanovich from the, uh, from the Pacers, um, who I know the Pacers are concerned about what his market might be. But you never hear a name like that you know, when the Lakers fans, you know, think about it. They're always thinking about, you know, they're all, you know, I'm sure the Lakers front office is always thinking big too. And I guess I don't blame them, but, um, it just, it sort of shows you it's, it's those types of decisions that, um, that end up, you know, coming to roost this time of year. Um, I'm going to look at the other end of the, um, at the other end of the standings right now. And, um, something interesting is happening. So, um, the tanking or the uh, the lottery rules changed this year with the intent to reduce the amount of tanking and in a way it's kind of working you know um you see uh teams like phoenix and new york and even cleveland have you know they are winning some games recently and um chicago has had a really positive last um you know month or so i mean they've lost the last few games but um and it's because the difference between being, um, you know, the fourth 
uh, worst record and the fir- and the uh, first worst record is almost negligible now. If you have the worst record in the league, you get a 14% chance. If you've got the third worst record in the league, you get a 14% chance. If you got the fourth worst record, you got a 12.5% chance. So it actually is, I think, improved it a little bit. I mean, if you're a Bulls or a Suns fan, you're actually seeing some life here. Um, and that's something that, you know, in years past you might not have seen. The thing about it is, is to get those percentages down, they had to put those percentages somewhere else. And those percentages went into, like, spots 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And so we are seeing quite the quote-unquote race for those positions. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll look at the Dallas Mavericks. Now, I can't say for 100% certain that the Mavericks are in full tank mode. Because last night, they're playing against, um, who did they lose to by a point last night? Houston. Houston. Um, Houston. They've got Luka Doncic out there kind of limping around, playing through an injury, and now he's questionable with a sore knee for their next game against San Antonio. I don't want to say that they are like actively out there putting a team out there trying to lose, but they did trade away like three starters, and they're one in ten in their last 11 games. And they've gone from being on the bubble of the playoffs to, to tied for the sixth worst record in the league, which gives them a 35% chance to hold on to their draft pick because uh, they draw the top four in the lottery now, not the top three, and their pick is top five protected. Um, Kevin, how do you think this is working or not working, these tanking maneuvers early on here? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, people are responding to incentives in much the way that you'd expect. And, you know, as much as uh, the signs of life that uh, fans of the teams at the bottom are seeing, I think it's more just not having to be so stressed out about every win that a team gets at the end of the season. Like, what, what was the year? Was it the year they ended up drafting Porzingis where the Knicks won their last two games and everyone in New York was furious? I mean, I think that, as much as anything else, is what the NBA doesn't want. They don't want Spike Lee on TV at the Oscars saying, we're tanking when Samuel L. Jackson informs him from the stage that the Knicks have actually won a game and snapped their uh, 17 or 18 game losing streak or whatever it was at that point. So, and that's happening. And, you know, if you're Chicago, it's easier to go out and make a trade for Otto Porter that you know is going to help you in the short term if it's not going to cost you as much in terms of lottery positioning. But you're right. I mean, it's created really interesting, different incentives in the middle of the lottery. Uh, you pointed to Dallas. I mean, I think a couple other teams that are interesting. Memphis is is quite the opposite. We've we has come up on the podcast before. Like their their ideal scenario is to end up ninth going into the lottery because they still have some chance of jumping up into the top four. But if they don't move up, then they end up sending their pick to Boston in you know what is generally considered a relatively that's certainly good ideal draft. for Boston. That's ideal for Boston because the best pick the boss can get is ninth. They'd love it if the Grizzlies finished ninth. Although, you know, they might be able to get a better pick in the future. I, it, it's, well, a, it's a mixed true. blessing. But then uh, the Lakers now are the team that are heavily incentivized to move up a couple of spots because if the Lakers could jump up into the top four in the lottery, it really dramatically changes their trade options. Yeah. Well, I think and, I would, I would just me, add on to that, Brian, is that yeah, Kirk. Well, to Kevin's point, I think is like, these teams are just rational actors in the landscape that they're presented. And D- Dallas is tanking right now, and they'd be foolish not to. They got a top five protected pick. 
And one question I've always had is like, are these protected picks good for tanking? Mm-hmm. Um, if you can, if you can, do, if they can get that that the, the pick not to convey this year, and they got Porzingis next year, and whoever they would draft this year in the top five, um, they're going to have a really terrible or mid mid level pick, uh, mid first round pick, maybe even uh, lower than that to to convey to Atlanta. Um, so they'd be they'd be fools. They're not going anywhere this year. Why shouldn't they lose all their games the rest of the way out? Um, I'm not sure they're doing that, but just from a rational actor standpoint, that's what they should be doing. Um, so if the league was serious about curtailing tanking, um, they should look at these protected picks um, uh, as, as as sort of the motivations or the incentives for these teams. I mean, it would it wouldn't really affect Dallas this year, but maybe make it so that the only stipulation is if you move up in the lottery or you know make it uh, you're allowed to protect it, whether you make the playoffs or not, something like that. But uh, to Kirk's point, I mean, I think the most blatant examples of tanking we've seen in the past, you've got the Warriors at the end of the, uh, what was that, the 2011-12 season when they ended up keeping their pick and got Harrison Barnes. Uh, and then also, you know, going back to when Mark Madsen was shooting threes in overtime of the Timberwolves' last game of the season, uh, both protected picks. Yeah, the Lakers, remember, they had a top three protected pick. They still needed lottery luck. But the, the pick that actually became Lonzo Ball... They tanked very hard to keep their chances as high as possible because, again, the difference there was a top three pick or no pick at all, um, right. which was huge. And uh, they didn't end up they ended up really cashing it in. But if you look at the Lakers, um, so they shut Lonzo Ball down. Now I don't know whether or not he could have played. He was doing some some light work. I think it's possible he could have come back. Um, uh, them saying he was out four to six weeks with a grade three sprain was laughable in my mind, but I'm not a doctor. Um, the Lakers today used their fifth, uh, their fifteenth roster spot on Andre Ingram, uh, who won everyone's heart last year because uh, he was a 32 year old or 33 year old rookie uh, coming out of the G League. Um, he is a average G League player. He averages, I think, he's averaging eight points for the South Bay Lakers. He's shooting. A decent percentage from three. I mean, it actually probably would be better than most of the Lakers players, but um, they signed him again to a 10-day contract. They've got a five-game road trip here. Um, they signed him to a 10-day contract. I mean, I, I guess he can help them, but um, that's a PR signing, if you ask me. Brian. They're not. Yes. Can I can I rest this conversation away from the Lakers? To, yes. I want to jam in this one thing because... Kirk had suggested this one topic beforehand, which I find fascinating. Uh, Louisa Thomas in The New Yorker wrote a very interesting article over the weekend on the age of anxiety in the NBA. There is a line here where she says, no one blinks these days when a player calls himself the CEO of his own brand. We're all brands now, supposedly. But for NBA players, that postmodern axiom is much more real than it is for most of us. It is also awkwardly at odds with the collectivity of teamwork. Brands don't have teammates. Uh, I wanted to open that up for discussion before we had to get out of here. And that was uh, uh, referring to Anthony Davis uh, on the shop with LeBron talking about how he is the CEO of his brand to explain his trade demand. Kirk, what about that uh, move to you? There's so much going on with with uh, the the age of anxiety. First, at Sloan last weekend, Adam Silver was talking about it. <clears throat> and now we have Louisa following up with this great provocative article about uh it was i think it was actually anthony davis on the shop talking about how he had what did to take i say control of uh lebron 
Oh, it was Anthony Davis talking to LeBron. Sorry. Yes, on the shot. But anyway, I think I think it really is interesting. Like basketball to me is my favorite sport in part because it's such a sort of naked, interpersonal, intimate thing, and you have to love one another to be the best basketball team in the world. Uh, and the kinds of championship dynasties we've seen have been these bands of brothers that have been so tightly bound. Um, you know, Scotty and Michael and and some of these 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 brothers, uh, but. Yeah, the idea that I'm my own brand and I'm a CEO of my own brand is almost antithetical to that idea that I'm a, I'm a teammate, um, that I care as much about you as I do about me, and that I'm really up, up for this collective uh, goal of, of winning a championship. And I think it sort of echoes things that Kevin talked about um, with the Lakers. Are they more interested in their brand than the product on the court? And I think the microcosm of that at the player level is the same. Am I more interested in my brand or what I'm doing on the basketball court? And I think it's really provocative. And I don't have any answers for you guys on that. But I do think it's something we're, we're sort of living through this season. I'm curious what you guys think. I was glad that Louisa made the point in the piece that the expression age of anxiety has existed as long as the NBA as a whole has. And, you know, I tried to make a similar point on Twitter last week about everyone's longing for these glory days of before we had social media. Guys, things were really crazy in the NBA and people were very unhappy in the NBA back then. Like that tension, I, it's different and it's probably more public than it used to be, but the tension between your own individual accolades and the success of your team, I think is, you know, that's fundamental to basketball, to Kirk's point. Uh, you know, Bill Simmons wrote in depth about this is the secret in his history, the book of basketball, you know, long before the rise of, you know, the, the social media or before we talked as much about people as players as brands. So to me, I, you know, I, I don't think it's going anywhere and I don't think it can be solved because I think it's just kind of fundamental to, to basketball and, and pro sports in general. I think it's a very important, it's simplistic, but it's a very important aspect that is different between now and 1993, say. And that is that an individual person or a group of individual people can get through the barrier of entry to get in front of a very famous and sometimes sensitive star player or general manager or owner is now dramatically lower. Because you can send a tweet or send a, uh, you know, an Instagram message, uh, that those guys actually will read and in some cases actually respond to. And before there was, you know, there was some heckling. Maybe there was a heckler that got under their skin and whatnot. But now it's, you know, any of a hundred different thousand voices. And so it's, it's much more difficult to, for the filter. And, um, you know, they, they haven't been raised. Uh, none of us have been raised to to have a filter to to manage all that. So you either have to block it out, which some guys do effectively, but it's not possible for others. Other people can't do it. So um, it's just it's just a difference. It's a change in society, and I think it manifests itself through a lot of different things. There's a lot of uh, literature and studies on this, especially with uh, bullying in school. What kids still get bullied, they just get bullied on a completely different way, and now it's even harsher because it doesn't have to be as personal. Because you can be bullied on Facebook, you can be bullied over social media a lot easier. Than you can be bullied in the lunchroom. So I think that's a it's a societal issue. I would just add, I think Kevin's right. This is not new, and that's a very important point. Um, I think, you know, one of the things you look at teams like Boston, Los Angeles Lakers, New Orleans Pelicans, Golden State with Kerr and Draymond even last night, 
And you see teams struggling to bond. And I think one of the quotes that's come up a lot last week uh, in response to the Silver comments in the Lee's article is the Isaiah quote about how championships are won on the bus and how th- today's NBA players are buried in headphones, buried in their devices. Um, I'm not sure if that's what's going on or if that's a thing, but I think, you know, we're seeing teams struggling to coalesce and, and so some of our bigger superstars struggling to be really effective leaders. Um, and, like, the best teams in the NBA have to play hard and play well together to win it all. And right now, teams like Houston and Milwaukee and Detroit aren't having problems doing that. Uh, but teams like Boston and the Lakers and, and maybe even the Warriors are. Um, and I think it's just it's just maybe maybe some there's some new reasons uh, for some old problems. And I think that's an interesting idea. I think we'll be talking about this a lot in the uh, coming months and years. Um, all right. Well, thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. Kevin and Kirk, always enlightening. They always have so much information. We go on and on. Uh, we'll be back with you later this week. Um, thanks for listening.